And it ain't Douglas Hostetter, Mennonite and conscientious objector who served in the middle of a hot zone during the Vietnam War, supporting the people who lived there. This is an amazing story. Rebecca McKean and I, Alan Winston, spoke with Mr. Hostetter at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar in Manhattan's Upper West Side on Juneteenth and Father's Day, 2022. This is part two of that conversation. During the Vietnam War from 1966 to 1969, rather than carrying a gun, Douglas Hostetter organized literacy classes for Vietnamese children and craft training for his neighbors. Rather than the relative safety of the American military compounds, Doug lived amongst his students and survived in the open by being useful to the community and nonviolent. In the second part of our conversation, Douglas Hostetter describes his interaction with the American Marines in a very different relationship with U.S. officers who saw his positive work with the local population as sapping GI morale. Then he tells about the CIA's attempt to have him assassinated. He also describes surviving the violence of the two-week Tet Offensive of 1968 and the human devastation that he witnessed afterwards. After serving his time, Doug talks about working to end the war in Vietnam through the People's Peace Treaty, a document signed by college students in Vietnam and the United States, which President Nixon rejected. Several years later, after hundreds of thousands of more humans died in Vietnam and Cambodia, the Paris Peace Accords were signed. These accords closely mirrored the earlier People's Peace Treaty. Doug also told us about his work in Nicaragua during the Contra War, about his on-the-ground attempts to prevent the first Gulf War by trading a plane full of medicine with the Iraqis for American and UN hostages, and his work to save Bosnian students from genocide in the 1990s. We began by asking Doug about his day-to-day work in Tamki. Once we got our, our schools started, was visiting schools all across the province, and by the time I left, we had schools in villages where I could go in a bicycle or a Honda 50, an American could not go in an armored personnel carrier because we were known and we were trusted. We also had sewing classes. We got Singer sewing machines, the turtle kinds, and uh, taught refugee women how to sew, become seamstresses. There were certain times when they could come in and use the machines to, to do their own stuff, to earn a living. We had the Bamboo Crafts Project that um, we had about 35 different families making crafts and taking them down and selling them at the Chulai Air Base. Uh, I had one other volunteer with me much of the time, another American. Disciples of Christ was the first one who was there for maybe six months or a year. And then he left and uh, finished his tour. And then the first Catholic to work for the Mennonite Central Committee, uh, Maurice Burns, who had uh, gone to seminary but never graduated and decided that he was a, a pacifist and that coming with the Mennonites was the right thing to do. So he came and he was my second partner that was there. And uh, Did you ever advocate for the local population with the American military? Well, if GIs came through town and were harassing somebody, somebody get drunk and, and harassing people or refusing to pay at a restaurant, uh, we would go try to find the military police, get them there. Some kid would try to steal a blanket from the back of a truck that was going, a military truck that was going through, and uh, the guy would shoot him, and you'd go and pick up the guy 
the kid whose guts were sprawled out across and take him to the hospital and try to save his life. You know, it was whatever came your way, you did. I wanted to kind of go back to what you were talking before and the fact that you felt in a way safe because of your relationship with the people that were around you that you're working with in the way that the American soldiers weren't. You must have come in contact with American soldiers. How did they react to you? Well, it's interesting. People have often asked, with the average American soldier, there was no animosity at all. Well, one time I was at Chulai Air Base, and you know, I had a longer, lot longer hair than what GIs would have, and I was, uh, after we had sold our crafts there, I'd gone out to the beach and was just lounging there on the beach, and uh, some Marine came up to me and he said, um, uh, are you a civilian? And I said, yes. And you might be interested to know, it took four Marines to throw one pacifist into the South China Sea. But it was all in good fun. It was, you know, it was, they resented most civilians because they thought we were either journalists or working for AID and making a lot of money. So they would often ask you, how much you're making? I'd say, well, we, we get $15 a month, plus room and board. <laughs> and they would look at me and they said, we thought GIs were paid terribly. That, that, that is horrendous. You're getting paid $15 a month plus room and board? I said, yeah, we can spend it for anything we want. Uh, and actually $15 a month was a fair bit in, in the Vietnamese economy. When they found out that I was living without a weapon in Tham Ki, they were totally blown away. They said, I, I would never go anywhere without my weapon. I, I, I couldn't be safe anywhere. You're living without a weapon? in the village of Tamki. So I had actually tremendous respect from most of the GIs. But from the officers, it was very different. Uh, the officers were really upset because it was hard on the morale of American soldiers to see that a pacifist could be living in the middle of a war zone without a weapon and not be harmed. And soldiers, also, I think, started thinking, you know, maybe if I were carrying school books instead of a grenade launcher, maybe I would be treated differently, too. It was hard on the morale of the American soldiers. And so the senior provincial advisor, Colonel Briarton, uh, said, we have to get rid of this guy. We can't have a pacifist living at peace in the middle of the war zone. It it's, doesn't look good to our soldiers and it's bad on the morale. And he won't cooperate with us, he won't meet with the CIA. So you weren't giving out information. Pardon? You weren't giving right. out information. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they came to me and said, would you tell me which of your students come from the rural areas? Well, the rural areas were all controlled by the National Liberation Front. So it would have been telling them whose parents were fighting for the NLF. Anybody more than a kilometer east or a kilometer west was in an NLF territory. So if, uh, and I would say, no, I'm sorry, I, we are here to serve the Vietnamese people. We're not here to communicate intelligence to anybody on either side. So they put pressure on the folks in Saigon to pull me back. I didn't want to go. And I said, no, if you can tell me what I've done wrong, I will either apologize or correct it or whatever. And they said, no. Uh, it's nothing that you've done wrong, but the military is really upset. The ambassador has actually come and spoken to the head of MCC and said, you've got to pull Doug Hostetter out of I-Corps. Um, 
we can't have a pacifist living in the middle of a war zone. So they called me to Saigon, and they were going to reassign me to an area where there wasn't a lot of active military stuff going on. And on the way there, I uh, met a reporter at the airport in Quang Ai, because I had to go from Tham Ki to Quang Ai and then change planes, catch another plane to, to Saigon. And there was a reporter from the National Catholic Reporter. And he said, I've heard that there's a pacifist up in Hue, a guy by the name of Dave Nesmith, that the military is trying to kick out of i And I said, yeah, Dave's a good friend of mine. I know him and I explained to him what had happened to him. He was an agriculturalist and he also had made friends with people on both sides and was not being harassed and was able to work freely. And the military was also trying to kick him out of way. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, the same thing is happening to me. And he said, oh, uh, do you mind if I take a picture of you? Do you mind if I interview you? And I said, no, go ahead. So, so we did an interview. He did an article that came out in the National Catholic Reporter and got picked up in the front page of the New York Times. And it said, it had three points. It said, the military that is destroying Vietnam is trying to kick out two pacifists one of them is an agriculturalist that's helping them with agriculture, and the other is a literacy worker that's helping them with education. We also have a government that is telling non-government organizations what they're supposed to do. In a democracy, a government does not order non-government organizations how to hire, fire, or deploy their staff. And third, we live in a country that believes in the separation of church and state. And the other volunteer worked for a secular organization, but I work for a religious organization. And Vietnam Christian Service is a, is a religious organization, and you are telling a religious organization that they have to redeploy their staff. Well, when it came out in the front page of the New York Times, the whole thing blew up, and AID had to pull back, and they had to say, no, we will not. Um, uh, we can, uh, you can deploy your staff wherever you want. And I was quickly sent back to Thamki. But that wasn't the end of the story. It got even deeper. So I came back. The uh, provincial advisor who had tried to get me kicked out, when he saw me coming back to Thamki, he turned beet red. He was just furious. And I thought, well, you know, there's been a new AID policy. There's been approved at the highest levels. They can't force me out anymore. There's nothing they can do. So I just went back to my work. I knew he was really pissed. So I was there for a month or so, and one of the high school students that was working in a program said, my father would like to meet with you this weekend. Uh, would you come and meet with me and I, uh, with my father? And I said, sure, I'll be over to your house on Saturday. He said, no, no, don't come to our house. Go to my aunt's house. And she told me where her aunt lived on the other side of the village. And I said, sure. I went to her aunt's house, and I said, your daughter said you wanted to meet with me. And he said, yes. He said, I actually work for the CIA. Well. A lot of Vietnamese bullshit, so I assumed he was bullshitting. And I said, you work for the CIA? And he said, yes, I said, I know you probably don't approve, but you know, my brother was killed, I'm supporting his family. My uncle was killed, I'm supporting his family. And the CIA actually paid quite well. And I'm supporting all these relatives. And I said, do they have a file on me? And he said, of course. I said, well, what's in the file? And he said, well, they've got pictures of you. And I said, well, where'd the pictures come from? He said, well, we I have no idea where they took the pictures, but they've got a bunch of pictures of you. And then I said, uh, what else is in the file? This is in a little village in the corner of Dumkey. He said, you went to Eastern Mennonite College in Harrisonburg, Virginia. You majored in sociology. You're not a communist. 
but you might have some friends who are, because you seem to have made friends with many people in Thamke. <laughs> so I knew the guy was actually telling the truth. It was a real, real deal. Yeah. So he said, uh, actually, the CIA has a program to try to get you killed. I said, really? Tell me about it. He said, you know, we have uh, the Phoenix program, which was a program to kill National Liberation Front elected officials in the rural area. And we have informants that come in from all of the NLF areas each month to tell us who are the locally elected officials, and then we go out and assassinate them, try to kill them uh, one way or another. When the informants come in this next month, we are going to tell them that you are a deep cover CIA agent. And we know what happened to the last time they discovered a deep cover CIA agent in Thamke, they blew up his house. And I said, do you have any advice for me? And he said, no, I have no advice for you. But he said, my daughter is very fond of you and, he thinks, and she thinks that you're doing really good work for the people and I wanted you to know that the CIA has this program. So I went back to Thamke and I had two primary advisors. One was a local Protestant pastor, a Vietnamese Protestant pastor. Went to the pastor and I said, um, Pastor Kong, I said, um, this is the deal. They've started this rumor that I'm a deep cover CIA agent with the hope that the next time that the NLF come and take over Thamke, that they will solve the Doug Hostetter problem for the CIA. Pastor Kong looked at me and he said, you can't leave. I said, you cannot leave. I said, what do you mean I can't leave? And he said, they have started a rumor that you're a deep cover CIA agent. If you leave Thamke now, you will be confirming the rumor, and the Mennonite Central Committee can never send any other volunteers back to Thamke because they will know that the Mennonite Central Committee is a cover for the CIA or Laos. So you have to stay. But he said, we will pray. I will pray, and my congregation will pray for you. And I said, thank you very much. So my other advisor was a local artist, um, Leyden Shum, uh, a wonderful friend, um, a poet, a writer, an intellectual. Um, he had helped design the Bamboo Crafts Project. He advised me on school books to get so that they wouldn't be political for our schools. Shum, I said, um, this is what I've heard. What should I do? And he said, you have to trust that your friends know you better. I never knew what that meant until I went back to Vietnam 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was invited back to Vietnam. I got in touch, tried to get in touch with Leyden Shum, the artist, because one of my high school students that had been in that program had immigrated to the United States probably about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And we got together and learned who lived, who died. He said, at the end of the war, he said, there was a really strange thing that happened. You know, we knew Leyden Shum, we knew his sister, we knew his aunts, we knew his mother. We never knew that he had a brother who was a high-level official in the North. And I said, oh, very interesting. And when the end of, when the end of war came, and the NLF took over. This high school student had had, then had graduated from college and was now back in Thamke and he was teaching in the high school where he had been studying when I was there. And he said, the new 
head of education under the new government was Leiden Schum, your artist friend. So I thought, that's very interesting. So I tried to get in touch with him. I found a um, Mennonite missionary who travels back and forth to Vietnam. He knew the, the town where he had retired to and gave me the name and an email of a pastor who was there and I sent him a copy of a picture of myself and Leiden Schum, who was a fairly well-known artist in Vietnam. And I said, would you try to find if Leiden Schum is around? I'd like to speak to him because I'm coming to Vietnam. I'd like to meet with him. So he got back to me in a week and said, I never found Leiden Schum. He died two years ago. But his daughter is going to be here next week to, be, uh, to talk with you because you were like an uncle in their home. You were always there, and uh, she went, so she invited me. She said, when you come, she said, you were like my uncle, please come, we'll take care of you. So 10 years ago, I went back, and I discovered not only did Leiden Chum have a brother in the north, he had four brothers. Three of them were in the south, right where we were, only on the other side. And he got an award after the war was over, which the family showed me, doing intelligence work for the NLF during the war. So when he said you have to trust that your friends know you better, he was telling his brothers, this is your friend. Don't believe that bullshit that the CIA is putting out. He was your friend. He, he was, was the friend. one. So God did save my life but with the help of a local artist who is also an intelligence agent for the other side. Well, also with your honesty and with your dedication and yeah. no, no, to, uh, to, to humanity, to, right. to peace. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that saved you also again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. But it was interesting. Those same things that saved me with the Vietnamese people made me a threat to the U.S. military. And uh, by the time I left... I actually knew I was much more endangered by killing, being killed by the Saigon government or by the U.S. CIA than I was by the National Liberation Front. I didn't realize how much more <laughs> until I went back 10 years later. In, in 2013. Yeah. 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 yeah, and you also saw the direct results of some of the terrible acts that were being done by our country. And you've mentioned some of them already. Bombing the schools, the civilians, hospitals as well as the death of people you knew. Can you tell us about one moment that has stayed with you? Oh, there are so many. Uh, probably, Tet 68 was when the NLF took over, um, I think, 50 different provinces. And I think every province, uh, they at least took over some and even got into the outside perimeter of the American embassy in Saigon. You know, usually when the NLF took over Thumkey, it was for a few hours in the middle of the night and they'd be gone by morning uh, when the sun came up. But in Tet 68, they came and they stayed for two weeks. My local Vietnamese friend said, usually the NLF that come in and take over Thumkey are local people. They all know you, they know who you are. But here in Tet Offensive, there are soldiers out there from Hanoi, from all over Vietnam. They have no clue who you are. You look an awful lot like an American. Do not leave your house. So for two weeks, I didn't leave my house. And Vietnamese brought food and supplies and stuff. 
uh, while I was there. Nobody bothered me. When I went out right afterward, just north of Tamki, well, uh, at the bridge, there were still bodies laying at the bridge where they had tried to uh, blow up the sappers had tried to blow up the bridge and they had been killed probably by claymores. And then there were hundreds of people that had been killed. I talked to a GI because there are all these bodies just north of Tamki. And um, they said, yeah, these were all NLF. Uh, we, we went out and we killed them all. And I said, uh, how many weapons did you retrieve? And these hundreds of bodies, that I think there were two. I think um, he said it, what it was is the, the, the NLF had gone to the rural populations and said there's a, there's a general uprising and we're going to march in to the Saigon controlled area. They had bamboo sticks that they were marching with and, and the political commissar or whoever would have had sidearms. So of the hundreds of people that were killed just north of Tamki, two weapons were found among them. The rest were civilians who'd come in and they had been told that the, uh, the local Vietnamese will rise up and, and uh, embrace you. Well, you know, uh, a lot of them did embrace them when they got in, but um, they had to fight their way in uh, militarily to take over Tamki. Uh, and the people who tried to come in and just do the uprising were, were all killed. The other one that I will never forget is probably shortly after Tet. Um, we had a school up in Tangbin. It was north of Thamki, about 10, 15 kilometers. The NLF had come in and taken over the town, which was a big embarrassment to the local soldiers. They had occupied the town for a period of time, and then they had left. Um, these are the American soldiers. These No, these would have been Saigon soldiers. There would have been American advisors probably with them. And we were up there just because uh, they had they had burned a bunch of houses, and so I'd put together a work crew to just kind of help to clean up the refugee camp. And so I had a bunch of students uh, with shovels and hoes trying to clean up debris. And because they were embarrassed that the NLF had taken over, they went out to the rural areas, and they captured 10 or 11 of the first adult males that they could find. And they brought them in to Tangmen. And they said, these are the NLF that, uh, that took over. There was an American advisor there, and, uh, and they were all bound. A couple of them were bleeding, um, and one was very old. There was an American advisor there, and I went up to the American advisor, and I said, how do you know they're NLF? And he smirked. And he said, they were wearing belts that you could have hung hand grenades from. I asked the students, I said, is there anything that we can do to save these people? And they said, no, there isn't. So we moved on and did our work. The soldiers lined them up at the edge of town, except for the one very old man, which they gave a reprieve, and the other nine or ten. They said, all right, you're free to go. As they walked out, they machine gunned them down and killed them all, except for the one old man who had been there. Uh, 
Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I mean, there are other instances of it. Um, you, you, I mean, I, I brought in this um, um, from your, I think it was from your diary yeah. about uh, a young man that had been uh, killed during a firefight. Yeah. Uh, would you mind reading that? Yeah. Tan was only 17 and still in high school. In fact, he had been studying at a friend's house in Thamki last Friday night. The VC had started to mortar, and he had run to the door of the house to get into the bomb shelter, but it had been shot in the doorway. Nobody knows by whom. I had been in his house to visit his family over a year ago. This was the first time I had been back since then. There was a fresh 50-foot-wide bomb crater around the house that had not been there a year ago. And his father pointed to the holes in the wall caused by the 105 howitzers that were firing from Thamki that had killed his grandchild over Tet. The motto with the three traditional blessings of the Chinese culture, happiness, prosperity, and long life, had been cracked in the blast and still hung on the wall. God, please stop it. Clearly this, um, um, this experience you had as a young man lives, lives with you. You're an, old, you're an older man now. We're, we're about the same age. But you're still there. I'm still there. I'm, uh, it's had a really profound effect on me. Um, I've worked for faith-based peace organizations for my entire life. Um, Methodist, Fellowship of Reconciliation, Quaker, Mennonite, taught in, uh, at Northwestern and Goshen College for a couple years, working now with Pax Christi International at, at the UN. I've followed American imperialism around the world. I didn't stay with Vietnam. When the U.S. moved on to Central America, I went and did work in Nicaragua and in El Salvador. Helped to build a clinic in Nicaragua in the middle of the war, in the middle of a war zone, and watched what the American Contra War was doing to the Nicaraguan people. Um, you know, after that, um, I'm trying to think which war came next. Maybe the first Gulf War tried to prevent the, the uh, first Gulf War, unsuccessfully traveled to, to uh, meet with government officials. After Saddam had invaded Kuwait and the Americans were building up in Saudi Arabia and everybody could see that the war was coming. Nobody was talking to Saddam. And I was working for the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the head of the Middle East Committee said, we need to go and talk to, to Iraq. We need to talk to the Iraqis. Nobody's talking. It's clear they're building up to build this war. So we met with uh, the ambassador in Washington. At first, they said, no, why would we want to speak to Americans? And, and then they took a look at the kind of work that the Fellowship of Reconciliation had been doing in Israel and Palestine and lots of other places around the world. And they said, actually, maybe we do want to talk to you. So I went and traveled um, to Iraq um, uh, with a delegation of about 17 people, including a couple of vets, um, a couple of journalists, a couple of clergy. We took medicine with us when we went because the, uh, the American embargo and the UN embargo had embargoed everything except medicine. So I said, you're allowed 60 pounds of weight 
to travel in there, you'll, you'll bring 50 pounds of medicine, you have 10 pounds for underwear, um, and an extra pair of jeans. Um, so we took medicine with us when we went. We went with religious leaders at all levels. It was very interesting. I, I uh, was on Good Morning America before we left, because uh, everybody thought it was crazy going and talking with Saddam Hussein as the Americans are building up. Uh, and um, so after coming, I got back in touch with uh, Good Morning America. I said, you know, we went there. We had a fabulous time. We helped to bring back three American hostage, four American hostages that were being ho held hostage there as a goodwill gesture. Uh, everybody we talked to in Iraq and all levels of the government said they do not want to fight with the United States. They want to find in an alternative way. And somehow or other, when I came back with that message, Good Morning America was not interested in, in talking to me anymore. Um, it was, uh, we discovered nobody was interested in that story. We could get it in local, local newspapers. So then we would, we would call people from all across the country and we sent, I think, four or five different delegations each month uh, meeting with people and coming back and getting in their local uh, church papers and their local community papers because anybody that goes and has been to Iraq. Um, uh, but, but in the end, we failed. We, we did help to bring back all of the American hostages. And in the end, I don't know whether that was... I, you know, I've always been somewhat ambivalent about that, but we... Uh, we actually were able to arrange taking a whole plane load of um, medicines to Iraq in exchange for the hostages. Um, and um, uh, we got all of the American hostages and the UN hostages out of Iraq before the war started. I don't know whether that made it easier for the Americans to go in. It probably did say the hostages were not, I mean, they were innocent people, uh, they didn't deserve to die. Uh, many of them were businessmen, a few of them were even religious pilgrimage from the U.S. who were going to Iraq for on a pilgrimage, Muslims. And because they were Americans, they were, so they, they were glad to get rid of some of the people that they were, but in the end, we bartered a plane load of, uh, and I, some people faulted me for that. And I said, you know, medicine, cannot be misused. It will be used to help people. It is something that we can do. It's something that the Iraqi Red Crescent has told us the medicines that they need. We got them the kind of medicines they needed. We got them there. And if they're willing to trade medicines for hostages, to me it seems like a win-win situation. But we were not able to stop that war. Um, and we're not able to generate, it's the American people did not want to hear that the Iraqi people did not want that war. Doug, it, it, it seems to me this is a conversation that needs to be had regarding the narrative of war in, the, in, in this country and how our media, both left and right, is complicit in, not, in, in, in presenting a certain militaristic narrative, whether yeah. it's left or right. Yeah. That narrative is not one that is expressed in in the national media yeah it's not, uh, it's not allowed in your your experience with good morning america 
seems to indicate that. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to kind of just get back a little bit to your experience in Vietnam. When your, when your service uh, to Tom Key ended, your friends in that village held a farewell party for you, and your teacher friend, who you've talked about, toasted you. Could you read what he said? Yeah, a little embarrassing, but um, big party, lots of people there, and um, one of the teachers that had worked with me in the high school stood up and gave this toast, which I'll never forget. And he said, you have loved the people of Tamki for the last three years, but you have been like a man at the bottom of a waterfalls with a small bucket, trying to throw the water back up over the top. Please go home and build a dam. And I realized that despite all the work that I had done, you know, helping to educate 4,000 Vietnamese children learning to read and write their own language and dozens of families able to support themselves and women learning how to uh, seamstress and we also had a little barbering school for people learning barbering. But it was small, it was minuscule and it was totally ineffective in stopping the war. And I remember thinking as I, as I watched American jets bombing the village of Kim Dai, which was literally two kilometers from Tham Ki. You're watching a phantom jet bombing this. And I realized somebody in Washington or in New York are making the decisions that are ordering that jet to come and bomb that village of Tham Ki. Sure, it goes down through the military and his commander told him to do that, but the, ultimately those decisions are made in Washington and New York. And if you're going to stop this war, you're going to have to do it at home. You're going to have to change the policies of the country that is waging this war. You have to do it through changing the ideas of the Americans who support those policies, by talking to government officials, by working at the UN, um, meeting with congressmen and senators. When uh, the peace accords were going nowhere and the Americans had been meeting for two years and had only decided the shape of the table that they were going to meet around. Um, the National Student Association said students should just go and we should negotiate a peace treaty. We should show the Americans that there is a way to end this war and that Vietnamese on both sides, in the North and in the South, can do it. So actually I was asked to join uh, this delegation. It was 15 students from all across the United States. Uh, mostly uh, student body presidents and campus newspaper editors. I was in graduate school at the time. Most of them were, were undergraduates, um, but I was fluent in Vietnamese, and so they thought that would be an asset and actually and enabled me to get into South Vietnam when, when the U.S. government tried to block the delegation from getting in. And we were able to get in and meet with the Saigon Student Union. Uh, we were all South Vietnamese students who were opposed to the war, they actually did the first draft of the People's Peace Treaty. I then flew out to Bangkok and Vientiane and then into Hanoi and joined with the rest of the group, met with the students in Hanoi. The students in Hanoi wanted to make sure that 
the students that we were dealing with in the South were really authentic, that they were not getting them, nobody had paid them, nobody was giving them money, they weren't being hired by CIA or USAID or anything. And when I assured them they weren't, in fact, they were risking their lives simply by doing this and, and the guy who signed it ended up going to prison for a couple years afterwards because of, of doing this. Um, they were totally enthusiastic and so we had students north and south and brought it back to the U.S. Then we had hundreds of colleges and universities. This would have been in the uh, spring 1971, right after the invasion of Cambodia. And Americans really wanted to end the war and so this was something that they could, they could sign on. It was declaring our peace with the Vietnamese, and it was outlining essentially what were the requirements for ending the war, that the Americans withdraw, that the prisoners all be released and the POWs be released, and that the Vietnamese solve the problems amongst themselves. And the Vietnamese in the South, and then the North, and the Americans all wanted that. It took Kissinger another two years to uh, the State Department fought us, CIA and FBI hounded me, but in the end, they essentially signed the same treaty that we had signed two years earlier to end the American involvement in the war on January 27, 1973, almost 50 years ago. And how many people died between that in that period? Uh, tens of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. You know, we wanted to also talk to you about your work in Pax Christi International, but that's a whole other <laughs> kind of big thing. I, I would love to get you and Mary Yelnick and others at Pax Christi and maybe who else you wanted to invite and have this conversation about why this message of peace is not resonating here in this country, why that narrative is not part of, you know, part of our consciousness. Which, nope. which it's not, and I'd like to invite you back. But Beck has one more question for you. This actually might be somewhat related. I don't know. Okay, so as a Mennonite individual, you believe in peace, even to the point of not killing another person who is trying to kill you. But it's all too common that those with power control through deadly force. Right now, Putin's Russia is vigorously killing Ukrainian civilians. Of course, the killing of vulnerable people is also part of the American history. We did it in Vietnam. Do the Ukrainians have the right to protect themselves with violence of their own? Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I never preached to the Vietnamese how they should respond to the violence that was coming upon them. And I don't preach to others. What I do try to do is sometimes show an alternative way, to live an alternative way. I can live what I believe. I can't preach it to others. I can live it. I can show an example. And I think in many ways, Ukraine is Russia's Vietnam, another big nation trying to exert its will on a smaller nation. They are fighting back. The kind of work that I've been doing in relationship to Ukraine, um, actually I've been doing a lot of work with uh, the Orthodox Peace Fellowship, which has been trying to work with Orthodox Christians, especially clergy in Russia, 
and in Ukraine who do not want to allow the Christian faith to be used for imperialist and militarist purposes, which is how the established Russian Orthodox Church is using it and the established Christian Church usually does in American imperialist wars. We are helping clergy who need to get out of Russia or Ukraine because they are refusing to collaborate in those kind of ways. There are also some Mennonites in Ukraine, some Ukrainian Mennonites. It's, there's a very interesting ancient history. Catherine the Great invited Swiss Mennonites to come to the Ukraine what, in the 18th century, I think, because Mennonites, you knew the Mennonites were good farmers, and they were chafing because the Swiss were trying to draft them to fight in their wars, and Catherine the Great guaranteed that they would not be drafted and that they could come and fight, and so Mennonites came and settled in the Ukraine and were very successful farmers there. When the Soviet Union uh, took place, many of the Mennonites immigrated and left because they uh, guarantee that they would not be drafted, that Catherine had given them was abrogated, and they were trying to force them into collective farms. Um, many were sent to Siberia and, and scattered all over. The, some came to the U.S. and Canada and Paraguay and other places, but there are a few who are still there, uh, Ukrainian Mennonites and uh, uh, Church of the Brethren that are in Ukraine. They are living and working as pacifists in the middle of that war. They are trying to help the victims uh, of the war. They're trying to be faithful humanitarian servants um, while refusing to participate in violence on either side. We are Barkroll Radio talking with people committed to helping others. And certainly we have hit a diamond mind of self-sacrifice with Doug Hostetter. A Mennonite who, when he was a young man, lived in a war zone helping his fellow humans gain the benefits of literacy. He continues to work for world peace through Pax Christi International. We want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. We, we, would, we would love to continue this conversation at some future point because there's much more that needs to be said, I think. Well, thank you. I, I've been privileged. I've, I've had an amazing life. Um, it's been a gift um, and I think I told you just uh, a couple weeks ago we had the 25th anniversary of the Bosnian student project it was another really amazing project in the middle of a war let me just tell you a one little vignette oh, please from that do. because please do. this is a, another thing on on nonviolence you know once again here you have a genocide taking place uh, where Christians are complicit in it I was trying to figure out, what do we do? I figured love is the antidote to genocide. I actually ended up working with a local Sufi imam, and we got together, and he had the Muslim connections and the connections in Bosnia. I had connections in, with peace fellowships around the country and colleges and universities, and we developed this program to, for kids who could no longer attend the school because of their ethnicity mostly Muslim or mixed family kids. We collected their resumes. Any school that would offer a scholarship, we would send them three or four or five resumes of students who would be appropriate for, for that. 
The school then selected the student that was appropriate for them, but they had to give a full scholarship. And then we had to find communities that were willing to take care of the people if they wouldn't also give room and board. It turned out it was amazing, you know, 160 students, students at Columbia, Harvard, Yale. So at the end of the war, um, I went back. I had two students living with our family. They were graduate students. One was at Cornell and the other at Butler, and they spent the summers with us. So we're, I was going back to the hometown of one of the students who was in my home. One of the things that I did was I, I gathered a list of all the students from Bihaj, that was the town that he came from, that were in our program and the various universities that they were in, and I had a list, this student, this university. And they told me that actually one of the people that they were going to meet with was a local general, Dudakovich, a very famous general, went on to become the, the top general in, in Bosnia, but at the, during the war he was the general who actually saved Bihaj from being overrun by the Serbs when they were there. And I happened to know that I had one of his soldiers who was AWOL, who was uh, studying film at NYU. Uh, and uh, so I just kind of forgot to put his name on this list of students. So we were there and having this picnic dinner and I showed him the list of all the students from Bihaj, minus the one. And he looked at it and he says, oh, he says, that's a nice list. He says, where's, where's Emir? I said, oh, I must have forgot. I'm sorry, yes, Emir, he's at NYU. He's studying film. He's doing really, really well. And he looked at me, he said, you know, Emir's father was one of my, one of my best officers. And when Emir was given a three-day leave, I also gave him $500 to bribe the border guards in Croatia to get across, because I knew that you had arranged a scholarship for him. And he said, you have provided an incredible service to Bosnia. You have given an education to some of our brightest and best students at a time when the world was destroying our country. Thank you for saving Bosnia. <laughs>